Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems most often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Madit Van Dyke, who is a software developer at Bull.com in the Netherlands. She's also an organizer of the European Testing Conference, a core contributor to Cucumber, and a speaker. Madit Van Dyke, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the software industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics that a code base is being well-maintained? For me, one would be tests. They're usually the first place where I look to figure out what the application does and how it should work, especially if they have naming that specify the intent of how the application should behave rather than test like test scenario one. That doesn't really tell me what it should do. So if that test fails, I don't know how to fix it. Being up to date in dependencies, we are currently working on one of our oldest applications that is a little bit behind in some of the dependencies. So that also makes it harder to update because some of the dependencies might no longer be maintained. And then if you update one, something else breaks. So we're going to give that project some love over the next months. Yeah, I think those are the the main things. I also really like to have a readme that at least tells me how to run it. In my current team, all of our applications are run the same way. But in my previous team, we had different ways of running each one, and I could never remember. So I like to have the readme as just a hint. And out of curiosity, um, I haven't got too far in the weeds with different people in the past about readme files and you know it's about getting it up and running is kind of like the main part of it how you're what other types of details do you find useful in a readme well it would also depend like for the internal projects that we work on we have a lot of information on our confluence that you can find about the application and, and what it's for and where it fits in the landscape but if it's a project like an open source project then a readme would also tell you what the project is for and maybe where to get help or find other information so it also depends maybe on who's using it. I'm sure you encounter scenarios where documentation, whether it's readme files or Confluence or some other wiki or whatever platform tools you're using, do you find that there's a clear delineation between what should go in readme versus, say, Confluence, like especially on maybe an internal project? Like, How do you distinguish that, knowing that there's kind of maybe developer nodes versus, oh, here's how the application kind of works in some ways or something at a, at a higher level? Yeah, so if it's really specifically geared to people working on that repository, I put it in the readme or somewhere in the code base. If it's at all relevant to business people, I put it in Confluence or whatever type of tool that you use for that. So it's been an ongoing conversation with our team here is figuring out, like, do we put documentation for how to deploy the application in the readme or do we keep that somewhere else or is it another type of document? There's all these different ways and like there's different uh, opinions there, at least on our team there. I think that could be a little bit of a, it's knowing like how well an application can be spun up by people within itself as a repository. We also know that, you know, not everybody's going to start loading in a bunch of like object designs and database schema type documentations and, you know, images necessarily in your repository either. So, and then also sometimes there's a lot of interdependencies with other tooling and other API apps in different repositories. So is there just a lot of like linking around readme files versus 
kind of a more holistic confluence section that can kind of break down and be like, okay, here's the different apps that we're using and how they kind of fit together. We use um, the same tool or tools to deploy all our application within the company I currently work for. So there isn't or shouldn't be very specific information on how to deploy a particular application. They're all deployed the same. And I think that's gotten a lot easier with automatic deployments. I used to be an implementation manager at a bank where I was in charge of making sure that applications that were built by outside vendors were deployed to test acceptance and production environments. And that was before we had these nice automation tools. So we would have these huge runbooks in Excel of, okay, and you do this and you do that and turn it down and back up the database and <laughs> you know do all the changes and make sure that everything got done in the right order. But fortunately, with a lot of automation, we don't have that complication anymore. That's great. How do you define technical debt? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, so for me, it would be anything that would slow you down. If you're either fixing a bug or adding new functionality or even just updating things. And I think on the one hand, you can incur debt on purpose. You make decisions now because you have to meet a deadline, get a feature out, get feedback on your feature. So you might hack it together a little bit, knowing that you have to come back and stabilize it. But I think also it can be created more as a, in terms of code rot, you know, if you leave it for a long time, then stuff is going to change around it. You know, they're going to find vulnerabilities in, in libraries that you're using. So you're going to need to update or, you know, just the world changes and there are newer, better solutions to things that you could use. And also I think there's, as you are building and maintaining an application, you will learn more about the domain. So you might come up with better ways of doing things as well as there might be new features or wishes to add to the application that you did not see when you first built it. So you might have built it in a way that did not take that situation into account and you might have to change it around and and change your design to accommodate those new features. So yeah, it could be on purpose, but For the most part, I don't think anybody sets out to write bad code. And I strongly believe in having some empathy for the situation in which the code was written. I agree with that. I think it's helpful to, you know, we don't always know the context behind how decisions were made in the past or what time constraints that people might have been having or what their skill level was at or where your own skill level was at probably, you know, half the time. So, yeah, you're probably familiar with the joke of, you know, always write your code like the person maintaining it is a psychopath who knows where you live, which I think is a very, (laughs) very aggressive way of looking at it. Like I said, I don't think anybody sets out to write bad code. So I really prefer instead to have, you know, always write it as if the person maintaining it is going to be you, assuming that you actually like yourself. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I had not heard that one before. That's a, that's an interesting one. Uh, Yeah. So I don't like the, aggression in it. So that's why I prefer to be like, you know, write it as if you like the people who are going to be maintaining it. I think the the closest I've gotten to that is just adding some googly eyes to the top of my monitor so that there's some little creature like staring at me, but it's, it's not very judgy. To keep you honest. When you hear other developers talking about technical debt, 
What sort of things, examples of things come up that you think are maybe not so accurate? Maybe they're mislabeling something as technical debt, in your opinion. I think for the most part, decisions made in the past where either it wasn't documented why certain decisions were made or what the constraints were at the time, or the people who made the decisions have left and cannot explain, or, you know, what seems obvious in hindsight just wasn't at the time. And just having that understanding of, yeah, the constraints under which the code was written. And also, like, we don't all start as senior developers. We're all still learning. This, that's what I love about this job. I get paid to solve puzzles all day and learn new things. It's amazing. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> so I think that's mainly it. Can you share some ways that programmers have raised concerns about what they perceive to be technical debt that you thought were, or maybe even yourself, that were ineffective? In a way, I'm not sure if the term debt really covers it because for business people, you go into debt because you make an investment. And sometimes you can create technical debt as an investment because you want to get the feature out and make, make a deadline and get feedback. But a lot of it isn't an investment. It's maintenance that you need to do and that you need to be aware of. And I've been fortunate in working with a lot of product owners who understand that they own the product and it's also their job to make sure that we can keep maintaining that project or product. But sometimes business people are more interested in, you know, getting new features out. Of course, that's, you know, more exciting to get new features out. But if we need to keep running this application, we also need to maintain it. Like, you know, if you own a car or a house or a yard, you need to do some maintenance work. How did you find your way into becoming a software engineer? Yeah, so I took basically what I call the scenic route to software engineering. I have an arts degree in computer science, which doesn't mean that I can draw computers, but I studied computers in context. So it was a mix of social science and computer science. And I did take Java classes and database classes and multimedia applications that we built in a group but also looked at the context of using technology in organizations and society and usability in that. And I worked as an information analyst when I started, was asked to become a project manager and did that for a while. And then through a reorganization where the organization I was working at was doing like the agile transition from being waterfall to agile, they got rid of a lot of the project managers and there were way more experienced project managers than I was at the time. So I got rehired as like an IT specialist or, or developer. And we did a lot of test automation at first. So that's how I discovered that actually I really liked programming and solving problems and having something to show for your work at the end of the day. Because as a project manager, sometimes you work hard all day but you end up further away from your goal because of things happening. And I really like just sitting in the corner, quietly coding away and, and getting all my green check marks on, on passing tests and maintaining that code. And I did test automation for a number of years and recently switched to software developer. That's great. Have you found that there's been some of that, the things that you, you learned in school when it came to your social sciences and, and your art background there in computer science that have been really applicable to being a software developer? 
I think more than some of my coworkers who have just a computer science background, I look at the context and what is the application intended to do and how does it fit with other things. And also I notice like I am not as interested in some of than some of my coworkers in using the latest technologies and, you know, trying out all of these interesting new things unless I have an actual problem that it would solve. And in that way, yeah, I'm, I might be a little bit different than your regular software engineer. Sure. Out of curiosity, kind of like a, this wasn't something I was intending to ask you, but the way you're kind of talking about new technology versus kind of stuff that you're already using and such, do you enjoy working on new applications or do you enjoy diving into things that have been around for a while a little bit more? Do you have a preference there? I enjoy both because I'm still really learning on like, how do you build an application well? And, you know, how do you make the right choices now that don't come to back to bite you later? I like writing a new application. We built a new service last year to replace part of a legacy system, like a big monolith that we're breaking up into smaller pieces. And that was really fun also because it was, the behavior was known. We had to replace something. So really we could specify, okay, here's how it should work. And, you know, in this case, do this, in that case, do that. And then we built that. And because we didn't have to think about the functionality, we could just build it very cleanly. And that was really nice. But like I said, we have one application that's sort of behind on maintenance and we just started doing some of that. And I just want to go way down in the rabbit hole and fix everything and make it nice because it's one of our most important services. And I think our motto is you build it, you run it, you love it. I want to love this more because it needs it. You know? Right. So for those that are not in the Netherlands, what is bold.com? So we are an online retail platform in the Netherlands and Belgium, basically a web store. And we do a lot of lo- our own logistics and we're very well known here. Anybody who lives in the Netherlands and Belgium has probably at least knows us and probably ordered with us. So yeah, we have all interesting challenges related to online retail. Nice. I've, I've been to um, Amsterdam a few times and I've seen the ads and around town, but I wasn't actually sure until I looked up the website. What types of uh, processes does your team put in place to keep your software maintainable? Yeah, so when we change or add functionality, we also include automated tests in that. So from unit tests to integration tests. Since I joined the team originally as a test engineer, my role has also been to make our test automation more stable. We have a lot of tests that are still running on a test environment that depend on a lot of the other microservices in the landscape. So for instance, one of the services we're responsible for is the order service. But in order to create an order in a particular state, we need to first create the order and then go to another system to ship it and then maybe go to another system to cancel it before we even have the right state set up. So that tends to be flaky if even one of those services is you know, having a slight delay. Our tests fail even though there's nothing wrong with our applications. So we're moving a lot of those tests to test in isolation where we spin up our application but mock all the other ones so that we can test our functionality in a more maintainable way. So that's something that I've added to the team. Nice. You know, out of curiosity, what types of technologies are you using there for programming languages and such? Yeah, so we use mainly Java and a lot of teams are switching to Kotlin. Yay, I love Kotlin. Some are using Scala and Groovy. 
I think we might have some go somewhere, but mainly it's it's JVM languages. So a pattern that you're adopting is to isolate your test suite for each of those you know services can kind of run independently regardless of whether or not those other services are up. So you're not actually hitting like a another test environment at the same time. So when you're mocking, are you kind of mocking the responses? I mean, out of curiosity from like an API level, if you're hitting an API, do you capture what is a ideal and maybe non-ideal example of what the response would look like, whether that's JSON, XML, or what have you from those other services or... Yeah, so mostly we use WireMock to mock mostly JSON responses. A lot of the services still have drivers that expose their objects that they would send. So we use those to build an object and then basically use a, a Jackson library to, to JSON it and serve that on WireMock. And that makes it really easy to serve whatever mock you need because you just add the, the data into the object and then serve that as a JSON. So that makes it also flexible and maintainable rather than having to deal with, I worked in a bank before we had like 200 payment files that needed to be maintained. And then if you wanted another one, you made a copy and you had to make sure to change the right things without breaking like the structure of the file. I prefer this way. It's, it's more maintainable. That's great. So I'm assuming you, you have technical debt. You, you know, you touched on like part of your role there has been to help improve the test reliability and source stability. When there's no maintenance work that needs to happen amongst the product backlog, what does that actually look like? Is Do people put in specific tickets into your ticketing system for like, we need to take care of this? Or is it that your team has adopted an approach where when you're working on something for, let's say, a new feature or an update, you're accounting for the technical debt that you're going to encounter and probably will clean up some along the way? Yeah, it's something that We struggle with, as most teams do, I guess. We keep going back and forth to we should include technical debt stories in a sprint with other stories where we're working on that application or, you know, where we have some extra time to, I mean, cleaning up little things. We call it the like the scouting rules in the Netherlands. We don't separate our scouts by sex. So they're all scouts. Which is great. (laughs) So they're all scouts. So, you know, sometimes we'll do a little bit of scouting and just fix the things that we find along the way. Like if if they're really small, you can include them in building a new feature. If they are bigger, the size of stories, then we just create stories on the backlog and, and we discuss like when do we need to do them. Sometimes they yeah, sometimes they block adding new features, so we have to do them first. And most product owners at our company are are very open to that discussion and, and understanding of needing to maintain the product. So that's great. Great. And is Bull.com hiring? Obviously. <laughs> We're always looking for more software engineers. We have a very international IT department. My team currently has someone from Spain and Israel. My previous team had people from China, Macedonia, Italy. We have... I don't even know how many nationalities. And I think that's super fun. And they'll help you relocate to the Netherlands. I think, unfortunately, our job site is in Dutch, but Google Translate can help you a lot. <laughs> All right, great. I will uh, make sure to include a link to in the show notes for your career site there. So let's say that there's some people hopefully listening that don't have a strong background in test automation, but are curious to learn more and maybe start diving into that more. As much as I wish everybody was well-versed in this. They're, they're not everybody has the opportunity. What advice might you offer them on how to learn more about diving into it? Or any specific literature? or? So 
I wrote a very short post for 97 Things Every Java Developer Should Know on uh, Medium, which is very, very high level because the, the word limit was 550 words. I could tell you a lot more about test automation, but not in 550 words, just on the, the how and the why. But yeah, think about what behavior of your application you want to anchor and safeguard and make sure to think also about the level at which you want to automate it because unit tests are a lot faster than starting up a spring application every time. I know that Angie Jones has started Test Automation U where she has a lot of courses, including an introduction course on the how and why of test automation, which is really great. And she knows so much and she shares her knowledge everywhere on her blog and conferences and everything. Yeah, one of my favorite books is Accelerate by Nicole Forsgren, Jess Humble, and Jean Kim. They talk also about test automation and how it should be a team effort. And I really, really strongly believe in that because if I'm writing tests or improving the test automation or improving the setup of the test automation, I learn a lot about the application. And sometimes just trying to add tests for a new feature helped me think about the architecture of that feature as well and whether functionality should be split off into different classes or not. For instance, we had a class that was getting information from seven services and then applying logic to that. But in order to test the logic, I would have to auto-wire all seven services, which was basically, this is a hint that something is wrong. So we split the logic from getting all of the data, and then we could just test the logic by itself without having to auto-wire all the yeah, REST services, basically. Interesting. Yeah, I'm always curious. How, some people will talk about how, you know, when they have a fairly strong background in writing tests, that they... It, change, it changes how they think about how they're going to build things in the first place. And rather than immediately jumping into, how am I going to solve this problem or build this feature? And you, you wire it up, you get the thing working. And you're like, okay, now I'm going to write some tests for this to make sure what I did is working versus kind of like that more of a test-driven or approach in that, in that sense. Yeah, and I especially like the test-driven approach if I'm fixing bugs. Because if I can reproduce the bug with a, with a test, then I know that I've understood the bug. And then I can go about fixing it. And it's really satisfying that if you have a test that's first red and it goes to green. So I highly recommend doing tests first, even if I don't always do it. But I see the value in it. We'll be back with our interview with Matt in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you, yes, you, for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on LinkedIn, social media, what have you, writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, etc. Also, if you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable, shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Matt Von Dyke. Do you have a strong opinion about whether it's important to delete tests at some point? I do. I think you should because test code is code too, and you have to maintain it just as your production code. It's as important. You know, I don't want to go fast without a seatbelt, so I don't want to go fast with my code without tests. And if it's no longer serving its purpose, you should delete it. And if you don't know what it does and it fails, maybe delete it or safeguard it in a different way. If 
it's flaky and unreliable, either fix it or delete it. And I think people have the, the sunk cost fallacy there as well. Like it took so long to set up this automation, we should keep everything. But if your suite is taking too long to run and not giving you the feedback when you need it, then, you know, make it faster or delete it. It's also my understanding that you're a fan of producing code in a collaborative approach. Yes, very much. What, what approaches to coding do you find work best for you and the teams you're a part of? So I absolutely adore my current team. We are very supportive of each other and work well together. I really like that we can pair up for stories, especially, you know, if you get stuck, everyone has their own expertise that they bring to the team. I love when my coworkers ask me, hey, can you sit down with me and, and think about how are we going to test this? And then they really listen to me and give their own input because I don't always know. I don't have the answer, but we have a discussion and then we come up with the best way together. Or if I'm struggling on a story, then someone can sit down with me and teach me what they know. And I always learn so much by pairing, even things I didn't even know I didn't know, like, you know, tiny tricks in IntelliJ or I don't know, anything. And I really love it. And last year we started experimenting with doing mob programming. So we planned a few days to do mob programming. And also there I learned so much and it really helps to have the whole team think about how are we going to build this and then everyone understand how it works and everyone puts forth their best ideas. Of course, it helps that we are in a what Gitta Klitgaard calls psychologically safe environment. So we can all speak our mind and we all know that everyone is going to listen to our ideas. Unfortunately, not all teams are like that. So it might not work as well for everyone. Sure. And for those that might not have heard an episode or two where this has been touched on by other guests, what's different between mob programming and pair programming? Is it three people just sitting at a keyboard together or? Yeah. So for me, pair programming would be two people and mob programming would be anything more than that. And our team currently is five people, but you know, it could be three. I consider three a mob maybe. We don't really do the strong style pairing with the driver and the navigator but we just sit there together and, and offer ideas and think about it and go back and forth. And I find that I solve my problems a lot faster if I have just even the sounding board. You know, sometimes it helps to explain your problem to someone. I have a bunch of rubber ducks sitting on my desk. Sometimes I'll try and explain it to them. And just the act of explaining uh, will help. But also sometimes it's just, you know, the one question that your teammate asks that makes the click to solve your problem. Collaborative puzzle solving. Yes. Do you often find yourself more on team rewrite or team refactor? I think I'd lean more towards team refactor because I like cleaning up code and I like deleting dead code that's no longer relevant. Hence the delete your tests if they're no longer relevant. I guess it depends also on the size. If it's a big, complicated application... You might think you can quickly rewrite it, but you might not be able to because you'll find all of these little quirks that maybe you didn't think about that were tiny edge cases from the past that have all been worked out in that application, but that you cannot rewrite as quickly, or you might miss cases. When I said the, we rebuilt an application that was part of the big monolith, what we did for a while was we did some shadow runs. So we would shadow with our new application the behavior of the actual running in production application and see that the output of our new application was the same. And by doing that, we found some differences that we had missed. 
So you run the, the risk of if you rebuild something, you can rebuild all of the functionality that you know, but maybe not some of the lesser known functionality. So highly recommend doing shadow runs if you can. What sort of tools do you use for that? So in this case, someone added a comparator to the old application that was going to be thrown away anyway. So they could just sort of hack it together and say, okay, I'm now going to send this input to the other application and get their output and then compare it to what I did here in in the old application. And that didn't need to be maintainable because it was going to be thrown away. But it did help us find uh, several cases that we'd missed or hadn't realized were there. And that was actually based on an idea from uh, one of my co-workers, Mikola Gurov, who did a, a talk on testing in production. And this was one of the examples. And I heard a dry run of that talk just as I was building this application. I was like, that's what we need. And that's another thing I really love about this company is we do like knowledge sharing. And, you know, as I work there longer, I get to know more developers all around the company and know you can always find someone who has experience with a particular tool or whatever. And, and I really like the, the knowledge sharing aspect of it. That's great. Because, you know, sometimes you have to struggle to learn stuff. But I mean, if you don't have to and you can help each other, I'd much prefer that. So let's imagine that there's a few programmers listening who feel like their concerns haven't been heard by their product owners or managers. And they need help with prioritizing improving the underlying pieces of an application's code base. For example, perhaps they've heard not right now, or maybe later this year, a few too many times, and starting to feel like it's not worth asking anymore. What advice might you offer them on how they can take some action today? So if you can make that visible, that will always help. If it's big things that you need, and you really need to get the time from your business stakeholders, then if you can make visible the impact of you know, not being able to change things and and adding new features taking longer and longer and longer, or not being able to quickly fix bugs and also the increased number of bugs and then the time that that takes away from being able to add new features, you should be able to show that your velocity is going down. And I think there's a Cucumber podcast on that where they talk about a bank that spent some deliberate time decreasing technical debt and could actually see that the amount of time spent on bugs was going down and that the amount of time adding new features was going up as they decreased their technical debt. I saw some interesting posts on Twitter today about a wall of technical debt is to make it more visible. And I kind of like that idea. If you know that it's out there, just post it on a wall so that everyone can see. And my favorite one was a picture where the title was Yaklog rather than Backlog. (laughs) So all your yak shavings can go on the yak log. That's my new favorite word I learned today. On the other hand, if it's small things, sometimes a little civil disobedience helps. You don't need to ask your boss for permission to add unit tests because, you know, you have to deliver working code. And for that, in order to say, okay, my story is done, you also have to be able to say, I know that it does what it's supposed to do. And you can do that by firing up the application and checking that yourself. But if you want to safeguard it, it might be easier to just add some unit tests. And I don't think that you need to ask your boss or your business for for permission to do that. I think that's part of your professionalism as a software developer. It should hopefully be part of your task in the first place, not like seen as an extra if time is 
available to verify that yeah. what you built is working. And I think that maybe adding it to your definition of done can also help. You know, when is the story done? Is it done when the functionality is there or is it done when the functionality is there and it's tested and we feel confident to release it to production? And so having that discussion, because they might tell you they don't want you to spend time doing tests, but they're also going to beat you over the head with the bugs. So yeah, <laughs> maybe have that discussion earlier. <laughs> how do you, and out of curiosity, uh, how do you find that your team defines done is if you have a story and you work on it, like say a new feature or something like that, are you responsible for making sure it gets all the way out and shipped? Or does that go to a different team to at some point be responsible for that? We're responsible for for the whole thing and we're responsible for maintaining it as well. So, you know, we could release buggy software to production, but then we'd have incidents and they would stress us out or, you know, they would stress me out anyway. I like stuff to be boring. And I think that helps too. I used to be in a, in a more waterfall environment where you had a change operation during the projects and a run operation, maintaining the stuff in production. And you would get this clash where, you know, the change operation would like to get stuff done and get new features to production. And the operation side would like to keep everything the same and change as little as possible in order for it to run smoothly. What I like about our current situation is we're responsible for it running in production. So that also makes me feel more like I need to make sure that it, that I release the right things. I don't want to break anything. I feel bad if I break anything. So, so as we kind of wrap up, I have a few last questions for you. You know, you already touched on books on there, but are there any non-software development related books that you find yourself recommending to people in our industry? I honestly cannot think of any non-software books because I read books a lot, also novels, not related to tech, but I guess that's pretty personal. What types of book you, you like? And actually, I have a very long list of books related to tech that I still want to read, but don't get around to or need to make time for. And so generally, I also recommend podcasts like yours and the Cucumber podcast I really like which is just basically, you know, a bunch of friends discussing software and uh, it's fun. So there are some of those. I really like Hansel Minutes by Scott Hanselman. Those work for me because I can listen to them on the way to work. That's great. I remember um, Scott Hanselman, I, we were, I was actually interviewed on his podcast, like maybe 2008. And we had a, a fun conversation because we were, it was about Git. GitHub had just been out for a few months and he was really skeptical about it. And it was an interesting conversation of he'd be like, but why would this be better than what we're already using? And it was, it was, it amuses me that, you know, I didn't really think I was doing anything with bleeding edge. I mean, it was me and a couple of my coworkers, but it, it was, it was pretty funny in, in retrospect that we're, uh, Microsoft now owns them. So, or owns GitHub now. So somehow we always end up meeting software developers wherever we go. That's true. So we had a New Year's party with some of our neighbors, one of whom is also a software developer, and we spent time bonding over our favorite Git commands. So, you know, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> Where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development? So I have a Twitter account, which has capitals, but it's basically, it's my name, Maddox van Dijk, and 77. So you can figure out how old I am. And yeah, I tweet random stuff, a lot of software development, but also, you know, I'm a parent and a person. 
yeah, so there, there's that. I do have a blog, but I don't get around to blogging as much as I would like. And I go to conferences and I do conference talks. So that's where you can find me. And I'm always happy to discuss software development. And this is a question that just came to mind since it's it was a little bit after the new year right now when we're recording this. And as you look ahead at 2020, is there something about your skill set that you're hoping to kind of level up on a bit this year? Mainly the technical skills of building software. And because I did the roundabout way of, of becoming a software developer. So I want to plan with my team to ask, you know, what are the things that I'm already good at? What are the things that I should know? And how can I, can I level up? So that's my plan for the year. Nice. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable Modit. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.